0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Vanessa Gray. One of the most important insights to emerge from the struggles by indigenous nations and in the work of indigenous writers and scholars is the way in which so many forms of harm and violence that seem from a mainstream perspective to be totally unconnected are in fact woven together through their embeddedness in the five century long colonization of Turtle Island, a way that some indigenous peoples refer to North America. When Grey looks around her community, she not only sees serious pollution and related health impacts, she sees yet another facet of the colonial violence that shows up in cultural appropriation, in interpersonal racism, in the violence and death faced by so many Indigenous women across the continent, in the ongoing attacks by the Canadian state on Indigenous relationships with the land, in the legacy of residential schools, and in the overall trajectory of broken treaties. She sees these things, and she acts to challenge and change them. Gray is a 21-year-old university student from Amgenong First Nation in southwestern Ontario, located near the city of Sarnia and in what is colloquially referred to as Chemical Valley. The community is surrounded by multiple toxin-producing industries, and it is further threatened by the efforts of the company Enbridge to repurpose its four-decade-old Line 9 pipeline to carry a different kind of oil in the opposite direction as part of ongoing efforts to export oil from the environmentally and colonially devastating tar sands in Alberta. Gray works with youth in Omgenong, with a coalition of activists from both Amgenong and Sarnia, and with allies in cities and frontline communities far and wide. She's working to raise awareness about the dangers posed by Line 9, about the multiple sources of toxins imposed on her community and the damage they cause, and about intertwined environmental and sovereignty issues more broadly. She talks with me about her community and about her involvement in struggles to defend it. I spoke with Gray by Skype to phone from Amgenong.
1: I'm Vanessa Gray from the Omgenong First Nation Reservation. I'm currently a student at Trent University and I'm twenty one years old. Omgenong First Nation is a anishinaabe community in the southwestern Ontario area. And there are about twelve hundred band members all together. About only eight hundred still currently live on the reserve. And so we live on a reservation along the St. Clair River. So there's a lot of oil refineries and industries and pipelines that cross the river. They also have a lot of freighters coming up and down the river. So it's very congested in our one area. And so from so much industry happening with so many different companies having their own work and different chemicals coming from each one of them, this resulted in a lot of health effects in our community, including respiratory issues, even the children, and higher cancer rates. There has been health studies done where there has been a sex ratio in the children, where the birth ratio is two girls for every one boy. And then there's been higher chance of miscarriages and stillbirth within mm-hmm. the community. And so we still deal with industry on a daily basis because there's always releases happening, whether it's in the air or land or water.
0: And just to clarify, when Grace says releases, she means releases of chemicals of various kinds from the various refineries and processing plants and so on that are in the area. And I should note that the community alarm indicating that a release has taken place went off briefly twice during the time that we were on the phone
1: have no control over it. We're sometimes alerted when it does happen, but it doesn't always happen when it should. Sometimes they set off the alarm hours after the release has happened, and so we have been breathing in whatever they release in the air. Whether it's something as toxic as benzene, we won't know until they alert us. And so when we do hear the alarm, we're supposed to go inside, close all the windows, and turn on the radio and wait to hear what happens. That's what we're dealing with in now I grew up with the Chemical Valley right next door to where I live, and so it was really normal to me for all of this to happen. I guess my eyes were more opened when I went to Alberta, and I went to the First Nations communities there. In Fort McMurray, I met some of the women from the frontline communities and. They've been challenging the tar sands project for a long time now. And so they started doing the healing walk every summer to bring awareness to what it's like to live on the front lines of the extraction process of the tar sands. And so when I learned that there is resistance to industry, that kind of opened my mind up a little bit to what I could do back home. And so I brought it back to my youth group that I started when I was in high school here. Because I was always a little bit environmentally aware of what's going on, I had the idea of starting a small group called Almstone Green Team to have this group available for young people so they can come to a place where they can express their frustration with our environment in healthier ways such as art and like doing family friendly things like cleaning up garbage and planting trees and that sort of thing. It's different than what I do now. It's more happy and friendly and that sort of thing, what I used to do when I was in high school. And it was just to have that space available for youth because I had wished that that was around when I was a youth. Like, uh, there was an environment base that we can talk about these issues and express it in a safer way than things like suicide that we see here a lot and optional. But I guess the whole idea of sovereignty with other nations was a little bit newer to me, and that's when I started targeting different industries and projects like the Tarzan for Solidarity with Other First Nations Communities. I became more radicalized when my sister, who's three years younger than me, she started learning a lot about the history of Canada in general, not just environmentally wise, but like about the genocide that has been committed against the Indigenous people. And so she opened my eyes a little bit to what residential school was and what the Canadian government has been doing to the Indigenous people. And just looking at all the. Like I've been to a couple First Nations communities since I started and places like Grassy Narrows have been extremely affected by the salt industry there with the mercury in their water and I've just seen so many connections to how First Nations people are treated today and where they were treated in history. And so I guess I was radicalized when I was taught about colonialism and I was taught about the Canadian government in general and their of pushing the tarpins <laughs> industry so much, and so that's when I became a little bit more radicalized. I guess when the G20 and Occupy happened, I became closer to folks who helped me become more aware of what's happening. But also, I've always remained close to people in Anjouan. And going to so many funerals, it's hard to not the connection to the alarms that go off that warn us that there's something in the air but we don't know what it is or how bad it is and then you go to funerals and you go visit your family in hospital so often that it's not right.
0: And what were some of the ways that you started organizing in response to these realizations whether in Amgenang or, or elsewhere?
1: It all came down to Line Nine because it runs right next to the community. The idea with Line Nine was you push sediment through this old pipeline, so bringing awareness to that issue is where I started to do demos and events and stuff in Sarnia and as well as Toronto, because it connects through all of Ontario, and so bringing the focus to Line 9 was to connect all of these issues to everyone's backyard. The pipeline, again, it runs right next to the community across the street from my grandpa's house where my dad grew up. So it's about 40 years old, 38 to be exact, and it has been built so long ago for conventional oil that goes through the pipe much more smoother than sands oil. The pipeline has been shut down for a little bit because they want to reverse where the oil is going and they want to put a new type of oil in it that's heavier and thicker to push through. We saw the effects of this with the Kalamazoo spill.
0: Gray is referring here to a spill that happened a few years ago in Michigan from a very similar pipeline owned by the same company.
1: We're line 6B. It was also an Enbridge line. spilled and it's still not cleaned up because there's no way of cleaning up heavy oil that sinks down to the bottom of lakes. So yeah, that oil is there, and people have died from living so close to an oil spill that they can't clean up. And so this is what we are afraid of happening in communities that are in proximity of Line 9.
0: And tell me about some of the things that you've been doing in response to that effort by Enbridge.
1: Bringing awareness to what it is, basically what I just told you. Bringing it to the attention of community members because there was one point when Tarzan's oil was unheard of or people just looked at it as good for the economy and it's Canadian oil, so it's good oil. So pushing the idea of people living on the front lines of environmental destruction and pushing Indigenous rights against the whole argument of this is great for the Canadian economy because it's Canadian oil for Canadians. So in actuality, this oil is not for Canadians. It's being shipped out any way possible, as we've seen with other pipelines out west, when people are, have like this poor understanding that they somehow are benefiting from this oil. We have held a few teachings about the work I do. Like I do teach-ins like as an update when I go to the healing walk or when I go to big events, I come back and I do a presentation about what I've done, who I've met, and what's going on in other territories and what are they doing, that sort of thing. Doing teachings about generally what my is also, but also what we could start doing or just starting that conversation in Omginau. We've had a few demos where it was more of a visual thing to bring media out, and we've done, like, marches, and we've done pretty much everything here in Amgenau that we tend to bring to these issues.
0: And what kind of conversations have you been having in the community? Like, uh, through your work, have people become more informed and more concerned about the issue?
1: Yeah, people have definitely become more concerned about this issue. When the last National Energy Board hearings happened, Funjone was one of the communities that intervened during the process with a heritage assessment that was done by lawyers. The chief and council has done their part, has tried to do their part, and at the grassroots level where I'm working, we are also trying to just build more awareness because it is there with some people, but always continuously try to bring new details or just the basics about Line 9 and the tar sands in general. So we're always working.
0: Tell me a bit about the core group that you do this work with.
1: We're called ASAP, ASAP. It stands for Amjanang and Sarnia Against Pipelines. It's called Amjanang and Sarnia because we work with community members from both communities who are concerned about Line 9 and other projects happening in the Chemical Valley. I guess it came together two or three years ago now we started that because there was no set group that worked on this specific issue because it has always been, like, anginal groups and then there were Sarnia groups that worked on these issues, but ASAP is there to connect different people from different groups on these issues. The people in ASAP are young parents, um, people who just want to know or who care about the issue also, that come out and help out as much as they can in any way they can. And they're the people that they organize for events with. And, and, yeah, they have ideas if they want to do anything. And we put together resources to do those types of actions or events.
0: In looking around at various things online, one of the things I came across, I think it was an event that just happened in the last week or two, was a toxic tour. Tell me a little bit about that activity.
1: Yeah, I did host a toxic tour. It's been going on for the past couple of years. I try to invite as many people as I can from other communities to come walk through Amjinong and come walk on the front line of the line between Amjinong and the Chemical Valley. And it's a very small line because we live right next door to these industries. And breathing in the air and seeing things and smelling things is a, is a experience in its own. People are very moved by it when they come. They have a better, different understanding of where we live. And I think it's hard for me because this is where I grew up. And I think people in Sonia don't like it when I do it because they think I'm exposing something or... You know, it's a secret or it's not as bad as people think, but it is really bad. And people live here, and I grew up here, and my ancestors passed this land down to us, but we are being poisoned continuously, and our rights are being overlooked as a people and as human beings in general. And so it's just a very honest way to... You know, I could tell you about the chemical values all day and all night, but you will still never understand what it's like until you come here and you experience it for yourself to understand. Like, I'll talk about what my own experiences are, and I'll talk about the companies and what projects you're looking at right now and what projects we want to bring in and that sort of thing.
0: One of the challenges when it comes to collaborating with environmentalists in the dominant society, in Canadian society, in white society, can be that often there's a lot of things in common when it comes to the sort of narrow green questions, but sometimes environmentalists don't necessarily make the same connections to colonization and to resisting colonization. How do you work through that kind of divide in trying to form alliances with environmentalists who are non-Indigenous?
1: I am I'm hard on those people. <laughs> Some people can look at me as difficult to work with because I don't put up with stupid questions. I mean it's one thing to ask a question to genuinely want to understand something but to come into my community and look around at the chemical valley and look at it as ew hey, oh, it stinks here type of thing. And yeah They're not exactly proving that they are in solidarity with indigenous people or that they are even concerned about us. Because if you look at environmental defense and Greenpeace and all of those different organizations, they don't mention RINA and affecting the indigenous people. They don't talk about the tar sands affecting the frontline communities in Alberta. They talk about the white people and their farms being affected by the tar sands and by lion lion, And so there's obviously no solidarity or genuine like understanding or even morals to look at the issue as it is. It's easier for I guess white people to feel sorry for other white people, but I do understand that the history of colonialism goes far back and I think some people can't deal with white privilege and so a lot of these terms are not in the media and it's easier to push an issue in a way that people would look at it or would like to look at it instead of in a very truthful and honest way that's hard for people to look at. I mean ideally I would love to work with groups who would want to push the message of solidarity and bring colonialism to attention, but it's just not happening.
0: Tell me a little bit about building connections with other frontline communities.
1: I think it's important because we have our strengths and weaknesses within our own communities, but if we're able to connect everybody, we can bring all of our strengths to the table, but also our weaknesses so we can work with each other to know where we're standing as the First Nations people of Turtle Island and try to bring together that solidarity with one another because if you look at First Nations communities, say Canada alone, we have our similar issues that we're dealing with, with our own government's in our communities, but also with different companies coming in and the lack of communication and consultation that happens within these processes. And if we're able to bring together all of these issues and look at them as a very similar thing, then I think we could definitely come up with a better strategy in general. It's important for Indigenous communities to do some internal work with one another, but it's also important for the general public and people who are, I guess, Canadians to know about these issues also, because there's still that misunderstanding of Indigenous people in general. There's still racism that we deal with. There's still the missing and murdered Indigenous women that is still a huge issue. And these are all different issues, but they're all connected because of the oppression that the Indigenous people here face. We are still trying to build ourselves up. It's hard to talk to elders when some of them have gone to residential schools and have lost their language. And I think building back our culture is so important because it's been taken away from us. But also for the Canadian public to understand that when they tell us to, you know, fuck your land, we want more money, we are building our economy, that there are so many underlying issues going on here that all connect to things like 9 and, and the tar sands and the Canadian genocide that's been done to the Indigenous people, there just has to be a better understanding because as Indigenous people, we do have to build back our culture. We do have to learn our language somehow and take back what has been taken from us.
0: One of the many connections that I think you just alluded to in what you were saying, and it's one that has made a powerful impression on me when I've heard people talk about it before, is the, the connection between the violence being done to the land and the violence underlying the many missing and murdered Indigenous women on this continent. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection between those two different kinds of violence?
1: To me, it's a very clear and strong connection. I see, if you look at the culture today. The culture in general is very colonial. It's so colonial and very weird that our culture is appropriated in media today. It has such a strong influence on people that the media appropriates who we are as a people and undermines the power that we do have within holding treaties to the land that they see our culture as a style or as a joke or as the drunk people that for some reason they're always unhappy and they live in these reses that don't look at nice middle-class communities and look at the way people look at the land. They look at the land like, I'm going to put a price on this land, therefore I own it, you know? It's like looking at the boreal forest as the tar sands instead of what it is, as a sacred place for many other creatures to be living and surviving. When people look at it as a very different way, that's when violence happens and they commit ecological genocide towards the land, just as people look at Indigenous women because they're, they're sexualized in media or they're just looked at as not equal. And so they look at women and treat them the way they do. It's the same way, I think, that the land is looked at and treated the way they do.
0: And what suggestions would you give to people who live in other communities, but who still want to act in support?
1: We are currently trying to empower youth. First Nations youth to be exposed and become aware of the politics and the environmentalism that we do. And to what's out there in general, there is a bit of a a feel of anxiety, but also youth giving up on a future at all because of where they see community members dying of cancer and living in a place like Chemical Valley. It's just not empowering to do much at all. But I think for me, all it took was talking to other women and other frontline communities to feel like that there's other people in the struggle and they are doing the work and it's hard, but it's worth doing. And so I, I try to organize for other youth to go to the Healing Walk and to share that sort of experience and hopefully gain something from that. So we are trying to raise funds to get a group of youth from Amjadong and Six Nations and other communities that are affected by Line 9 to go to the healing walk, the last healing walk this year. The healing walk is the Athabasca First Nations women and people in Alberta in the Fort McMurray area where we go to do the walk. It's a walk where we say prayer for the land. The walk is to, for one, to expose what it, the sands are really like and to hear from the frontline community people their experiences and where they're going with their work and to talk about Anjanong there, but to also connect with other communities at the Healing Walk. Right now we're trying to raise money to do that. We're also trying to restore a toxic pond in Anjanong. So there's different projects that we're working on and that we have been working on for a little bit, but we are looking for funds or people who know what they're doing when it comes to testing water or plants or native species or people who want to see indigenous youth or a younger generation take on this role of land defenders. So we're working on our own projects as well as bringing the awareness. So if people want to support, then they should tell the story of Amjanang to other people. Talk about colonialism, talk about white privilege. These conversations need to happen. But also, if people just have a few extra bucks that they want to contribute to our cause, then they can go to the AmjanangSolidarity.com website.
0: What else do you see coming up in the next six months or a year that you're excited about and are looking forward to doing?
1: I'm excited for the Anki Jig project, the pond that is toxic in our community. We're trying to restore it. We're going to test it, see how bad it's been since the last time it was tested, and then introduce, reintroduce the native plants back into the area. We have to cleanse the area naturally, and, of course, it's going to be done over time. So we're helping this project to get larger and to bring youth out during this time for elder teachings. This project is a representative of building back the land physically, but also building back our culture and our language and our teachings and ceremonies back. I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited to see more youth come out. I'm excited to see the connection and that responsibility for youth and others for that relationship to remain and to hopefully carry on those traditions and continue to bring my Nile as an issue because it's still an issue. We can't handle an oil spill like that here. Anjana um, is already small enough and we're already surrounded by industry and this is all we have left, but I think we're willing to fight for it. And I personally am willing to do what I can to have a better future for Omgenong and for all nations to fight against industry.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Vanessa Gray, a 21-year-old activist from Omgenong First Nation. We've been talking about her work against the intertwined issues of pollution and colonization, both in terms of Enbridge's Line 9 pipeline and more broadly. To learn more about the struggles that she's been talking about, go to amjanongsolidarity.com. That's all one word, amjanongsolidarity.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca.